Hello and welcome to Full Contact Nerd, where we talk about fiction and storytelling in all its forms. From the weird to the fantastic, horror, sci-fi, fantasy, thrillers, mysteries, anything you can ask for, we have it. I'm Chris Alvarez, and thank you for listening. I'm speaking with Sarah Reed, author of The Bone Weaver's Orchard, published February 1st, 2019, by Trepidatio Publishing, and also winner of uh, the 2019 Bram Stoker uh, Best First Novel Award. Um, thank you for speaking with me. Thanks for having me. It's nice to meet you all. Cool. Thanks. Um, so first, you know, as a writer, you have a lot of ideas rolling around in your head. How did this particular idea rise above the rest and, and become the book you wrote? <laughs> well, um, I did. I did a thing that you're not they tell you you shouldn't do, which is I didn't, I didn't really pick a single idea um, because I didn't really think I was writing it for anyone but myself. Instead, I just put all my favorite things in uh, and all my favorite ideas. So <laughs> everything I loved about historical fiction and Gothic fiction and, you know, different characters and things like that. I just, uh, I, I did it all. I didn't pick one. I just had a blast. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. Tell me, tell me about the book then, you know, describe it uh, to me. Uh, well, it takes place in 1926 mm -hmm. in Yorkshire at a, a boarding school that used to be an abbey. And then before that, it was a, um, you know, ancestral family home. And, um, well, wait, reverse that. <laughs> it was an ancestral, it was an abbey and then an ancestral family home. And then it became a school. Mm -hmm. And... It's about a young boy named Charlie, and he comes to the school uh, from Africa, where his father is part of the colonizing British army um, going throughout the different countries. And so he is uh, not familiar with British education and customs and has a hard time assimilating. Uh, he loves insects and has a collection that he brings with him, which is not popular amongst mm. the students and staff of the mm. school. Uh, but he does manage to make one friend uh, who then vanishes. And it's his quest to prove that his friend didn't just run away and that there's something else going on at the school. Mm -hmm. Why did you, why did he have the hobby of uh, the entomology? Is that the right word for yeah. insects? Uh, Cause I, I really like bugs. Ah, okay. <laughs> So, That's so, the simple answer. <laughs> okay. Do you, do you study them that intensely, or did this character? No. Okay. No, I don't. I don't dig into it too deeply. Um, you know, I like to follow entomologists on Instagram, and um, I did some research for the book, but I, I am not myself an entomologist. I, I have a lot of accidental pet spiders, but nothing <laughs> formal. Accidental. Like yeah. the small variety or the larger variety? No, just the house spiders that, um, you know, I don't get rid of them. I just let them mm -hmm. be and they accumulate in great numbers sometimes. Yeah. I think people forget how useful spiders are in, in taking care of other nastier bugs. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There are friends. That's what I have to tell my children who don't much like my habit of letting them be. Oh, really? <laughs> they poke yeah. around and... Uh... So, um, so you did mention you did a low research, um, in entomology for the book. What, what other research did you, did you do for the, you know, the history and maybe the setting and all that? Oh, lots. Mm -hmm. Um, I researched old buildings in the area and what their history was like. I researched the family dynamics of those, you know, ancient families and, and the houses themselves and the Reformation and how they became, how they came to be houses instead of churches. And hmm. um, I did a lot of research about that. But then, I mean, you know, you'll be writing and then you'll realize there's this one detail and you have to know the answer <laughs> to move forward. Like uh, in one of the opening scenes, there's a car idling out front of the school and I'm writing and I pause and I'm like, wait, it's 1926. Can they idle? <laughs> and that will send me off on a day's hunt <laughs> yeah. information about what kinds of cars you could get in 1926 in Yorkshire and could they idle? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? yeah. so, That's fun you know, stuff. It, 
there's a lot of research that goes into writing historical fiction, but that's also the part I enjoy the most. So mm. it works out. Fine. So did you come across any details, historical details that, uh, that surprised you or shocked you? Be well, not, not particularly shocking because I, I have read this genre since my youth. Mm. And so a lot of it kind of fell. It was more a confirmation of, the mental picture that I had more than surprising me. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there was more technology than available than I would have normally thought mm -hmm. um, in a remote house like that. But, um, you know, cause I debated for a while. It's like, well, do I put a telephone in the office? It's like, well, yeah, I think I kind of got to, you know, it's far enough along that they really should have one. Yeah. It might not have been super common, mm -hmm. but this was a rich family that had owned the house before. So they very likely would have had one. So mm -hmm. stuff like that, um, just weighing, you know, the what to include and what not to include. <laughs> and so another part to that question is, did you come across any details that maybe changed your story? And you don't have to go into details, you know, to give anything away, but... Um... It sounds like you're pretty, you pretty, you knew the world pretty well already then. Yeah, it's, it's a, like I said, it's kind of, it's the area that I've always loved to read. So I've read a lot of books that take place um, in, throughout history in England and all these different time periods. And mm -hmm. so it, I kind of have benefited a lot, I think, from the hard work a lot of researchers have done before me. Oh, okay. <laughs> already had kind of a picture in my head of what what it would be like there mm -hmm. even though i've never been there mm -hmm. but so and and why 1926 precisely or specifically i wanted to work with that kind of anti-colonialism theme mm -hmm. um and i wanted to you know to have enough modern thinking available there to for for Charlie to have these philosophies and you know so I I didn't want it to be too too far in the past because I wanted to show um some progression of thought in terms of like um Sam Forster's character mm -hmm. um you know he's mixed race and he works at this school and what is his situation like there. So I wanted to bring in some of those themes that, I mean, I could have done at other times in history too, mm -hmm. but um, it just seemed to fit better mm -hmm. in that, that specific period of time during the, um, the rebellions in Cairo, you know, that would have been a situation in which, an officer who had maybe brought his family with him would have to send them away. Okay. And, um, I haven't read the book. Um, so I'm curious. So what, what sort of horror do you put in the book? And I don't, again, I don't want you to give anything away, but is it more like monsters or more Gothic atmosphere? Or what's your approach? It's definitely more Gothic atmosphere. And just as with, Many things I write, I try and dance that line between um, psychological and supernatural a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a few elements that are ambiguously supernatural, mm -hmm. but are also perfectly explainable psychologically. Okay, okay. So tell me some of the um, some of the things that that generally inspire you, and that can be either in books, movies, TV, music, um, games, whatever. Uh, everything. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's part of the problem. I think everything's so interesting. I want to know it all. Um, oh, yeah. but I mean, like I said, I do love Gothic fiction. So I read a lot of that, um, and movies. Mm -hmm. uh, that's probably my favorite flavor. Um, but I'm also, I'm a librarian, so I read oh, okay. everything in addition to that. So it's hard for me to just, pinpoint one source of inspiration because I might be, you know, inspired by a children's picture book mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> to write something that's far from, you know, far removed from the children's literature world. So yeah. it's, yeah, inspiration's everywhere. I think it's just a matter of, you know, 
when you're paying attention. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you have a lot of books behind you. How how do you choose what you just flip through and what you end up buying and taking home and adopting? (laughs) Well, this picture is actually from a bookstore in New Orleans. (laughs) Oh, okay. okay. I would have lived there if I could have. It's (laughs) not that far from what my house actually does look like. But if it's a virtual background, then nobody has to know that my house does look like this. It's just a different wall that looks like but uh, yeah, I I love books and I always have. Mm-hmm. Um, I've always worked in either libraries or bookstores, and mm-hmm. my house is I think I have nine big like big bookshelves full mm-hmm. and like double layer. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, yeah. I have the same, so I totally understand what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. Um. So yeah, and uh, yeah. Yeah, I adopt a lot of books. Yes, yes. <laughs> I'm speaking with Sarah Reed, author of The Bone Weaver's Orchard. You can find more information about her work at inkwellmonster.wordpress.com. If you like this podcast, Full Contact Nerd, so far, please subscribe to it and rate it if you can. Please sign up for my weekly newsletter at fullcontactnerd.com or chrisalvarez.com to keep up with my latest posts. You'll also find written interviews and my social media links there. You can find the links to my other podcasts at militaryhistorypodcast.com and technologyinspace.com. And now back to the podcast. What, uh, with this particular book, what would you say is the, if it had a soundtrack, um, or, you know, what, what's the aesthetic or the sort of the, the, the sound feeling of the book? Well... I don't know maybe some spooky violins mm-hmm. um the aesthetic is often compared to and was somewhat inspired by uh guillermo del toro's films mm-hmm. so that's kind of that you know slightly gritty historical mm. shadowed <laughs> look to it and as far as sound though that's tricky because I think it would be, you know, dark 1920s music. Yeah. You know, I don't know. Okay. Okay. <laughs> as far as your approach to writing, um, do you do anything out of the ordinary to write your drafts or do you create, you know, finish it, finish your novel? Um, I, I handwrite everything, hmm. which I'm told is not ordinary. Mm-hmm. Um, I think better on paper and I've got, you know, I've got two kids. I work two jobs Mm -hmm. um, and I'm in grad school. So I don't have much time. (laughs) So I have to write when I can Mm -hmm. and where I can and technology while it can do that. It's not seamless. Um, So for me, a pen and paper is necessary. Mm -hmm. Um, and they go with me everywhere, room to room, place to place. Mm-hmm. And so I handwrite all my drafts, and then um, I go back and read through and make notes, and then I type it up. And by the time I type it, it's really a third draft. Mm-hmm. Um, so the revision process for me is, I don't know, I, I keep a separate notebook from the actual draft notebook, and in that hmm. separate notebook is where I make my revision notes and do my research and take research notes and draw blueprints and family trees, okay. <laughs> you know, and all that kind of yeah. background detail work, hmm. um, you know, notes all over it to remind myself of characters' names that I keep forgetting, <laughs> things like that. Um, and then, you know, at that point I'll exchange with um, other writers or editors and, um, work on the manuscript then more with friends and partners and then and then fix it up and then repeat mm-hmm. that last step however many times well considering that you like writing when you get to the point where you're using a computer to finish it up is that is that not as much fun or frustrating for you it is i don't like sitting at a screen anymore by the time my day is done yeah. um Oftentimes, if I if I get to a point where um, 
I know I'm going to be doing some big rewrites or big edits. I will print out the computer manuscript uh-huh. and do my edits on hard copy yeah. because I got to take it with me or it won't get done. Right. Right. Okay. <laughs> you're, 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 you have a workaround for the, um, for the electronic systems. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I'm good with computers, but it do- we don't like each other. Mm-hmm. We just have come to a kind of truce. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, yeah, I'm, all of my projects right now are on, at the computer phase, and I'm kind of like, eh. <laughs> it makes me want to start another another book so that I can get back to pen and paper. <laughs> I, I, I had this image in my brain of you and all your spiders staring angrily at the computer screen, and it's staring back. <laughs> that is almost exactly what it looks like. Yeah. My, I have a big windows. This room is almost all windows. It's more of a porch than an office. Mm-hmm. And because I'm always in here working late at night with the light on, the spiders have learned to build their webs across the windows because it attracts all the moths and little lake flies Uh, and things. So my windows are just covered in spiders (laughs) three seasons out of the year. So yeah, that is precisely (laughs) what it looks like when I'm working. (laughs) You're you're their ruler or their... Sust, you know, their provider, or <laughs> you're part One of their. One of my nicknames is Spider Mother. <laughs> <laughs> you're part of that little biosphere. Mm-hmm. That's pretty. Yeah. That's pretty nice. I've entered the ecosystem. <laughs> so, considering you know you won the award for this book, um, has that has winning the award changed your approach to writing at all? Uh, maybe. Um... There is a little bit of that kind of, well, that seems to have set expectations a little high. (laughs) No pressure or anything now, but (laughs) one better be good too. (laughs) But um, it, it helped that I had already written the next book before the award. So, um, but I am working on a prequel and a sequel for Bone Weaver. Mm -hmm. And I guess there's a little bit of pressure there because because of the nature of the historical setting I chose, the prequel and the sequel are both very different Mm -hmm. (laughs) because the prequel is going to be in Victorian times and the sequel takes place during World War II. Mm -hmm. And because change was happening so quickly in history, then they're very different worlds. Mm Um, so there's a very different feel for hmm. these other ones. So, um, you know, it's, I guess it's one of those things where it's like, well, I hope people will still like it, even though it's nothing like <laughs> the hmm. original. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I think if they like your style of writing, then that should, that should suffice. Right. I hope so. Yeah. That would be, that'd be great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I assume, well, I assume they'll both have sort of the similar horror gothic feel to, well, you said they'd be slightly different, but they'd still have the same rules to their universes, right? A bit. Yeah. The, the prequel is, well, as far as like comparison inspirations go, mm-hmm. Bone Weaver's Orchard is like the secret garden to mm-hmm. me. That was its main inspiration. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, gothic, but hopeful in a way Hmm. that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Whereas the prequels, very turning of the screw, Hmm. uh, very Gothic, a little darker. Um, it, it's about more about the history of the family that owned the home and why it became a school. Like Hmm. what happened to this family? So, so it's a little bit, more gothic <laughs> which hey, <yeah. laughs> yay um <laughs> whereas the sequel taking place during world war ii you know obviously a little bit more modern mm-hmm. but it also is an but that one continues charlie's story the main character charlie's not in the prequel he's not born yet okay. um and the sequel is it's still horror but it's weirder it's more weird horror than gothic horror. Hmm. Um, there's still some, definitely some gothicism in there because I'm not sure how to not do that. But mm-hmm. um, 
but it's not it's not the same flavor of horror i think as bone weaver so i get the impression that um sort of horror changes around world war ii because of the of science you know you have atomic stuff and you have more scientific mm -hmm. creatures and um yes. so when you say weird it's more weird i start that's what my brain starts thinking about that and that's how it goes yeah because charlie does become an entomologist mm -hmm. and he does work in the war in mm -hmm. that capacity yeah. Um, and so I did dig into the science a bit and, um, yeah, I don't want to give too much away cause I'm still no. writing that one, but right, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'll probably say something and change my mind later. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so which one will, is, do you anticipate will come out first, the prequel and then the sequel? Probably I'm further along. I'm trying to write both at the same time, which is maybe a little bit silly, but mm. I'm also not actively working on either one of them right at this moment because I'm working on edits on an unrelated novel mm. um, for an agent who I'm working with, but not for at the moment. Mm -hmm. um, and then I'm also ghostwriting a novel for someone right now. So, <laughs> oh. um, but I, I'm a little bit further along in the prequel than I am the sequel. Mm -hmm. And I also want to do a lot more research for the sequel. So I think the prequel will definitely be first. Mm -hmm. Now, I think I noted in your bio, you're also fiction editor, editor for, is it Pat, which magazine? Oh, Pantheon magazine. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which unfortunately it, it went on hiatus. Mm -hmm. Um, two years ago ah. in hopes that we would come back at the beginning about a year ago mm -hmm. at 2021, we were going to take a year off. Um, but <laughs> 2020 was like, now's maybe not a good time <laughs> yeah. to, to start that again. So, um, I don't know when it will bounce back. Mm -hmm. Now it's still sleeping. So okay. if, um, but if Pantheon magazine does, stay on hiatus indefinitely um i may do some independent editing anthologies mm -hmm. um, and just pitch them to other publishers i know mm -hmm. but probably not anytime too terribly soon mostly because of grad school <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah so so do you um so your editing do you focus on horror fiction or do you do you like working on all genres or other genres um, for pantheon we had a mixture of genres mm -hmm. um it was just mythology themed but it could be realistic it could be horror it could be fantasy science fiction um we had all different kinds of writing um we had a an annual anthology called gaia mm -hmm. um, that went to three volumes we did that for three years that was all fantasy stories. Um, and that always benefited some nature cause. We would pick a nature conservatory or something like that for the proceeds. And then we had an annual horror one also called Typhon. Mm -hmm. um, so we did lots of, lots of different genres. Mm -hmm. Okay. So normally I ask, and you've sort of answered much of this already. I ask what other, non-writing work have you done that's influenced how or what you write and you mentioned you know librarian um yeah you know so you get a lot of ideas there a anything else any other work i i mean i used to when i studied literature i also would teach some literature courses mm -hmm. um but that probably still falls under that same umbrella as yeah. <laughs> like used to, you know, teach Shakespeare courses in Chaucer and uh, medieval history and linguistics and mm -hmm. things like that. Word nerd, just lifelong word nerd. Yeah. Do you remember what, what your first, um, the first things you were reading when you were young? Do you remember what your introduction to literature was? Uh, well, my, my grandmother was, um, just an avid reader, the most avid reader I've ever known. And I've known some wild readers. <laughs> um, and she always read to me and she taught me to read when I was three mm -hmm. and she liked Gothic books too. <laughs> so oh, okay. That's probably, this is all her fault. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, 
I remember one of my favorite picture books she used to read with me was called The Glow in the Dark Spooky House. Mm-hmm. You know, and so it was a ghost story picture book mm-hmm. that glowed in the dark. And cool. you could read it in the light, and it was just this nice picture book about this family and their house. But if you read it in the dark, it was like a different story yeah. <laughs> going on mm-hmm. invisibly on the same page. Yeah. I loved it. Yeah. That sounds so, pretty cool. Yeah. That's one of my favorite earlier reading memories was... I, I read that book so many times I wore out the glow in the dark on it. <laughs> Did you? I didn't know glow in the dark could wear out. It will I eventually it rub off. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Um, so how about, how about editing and writing? When did you start doing, when did you start dabbling in that? Um, well, <laughs> I was in sixth grade when I first started submitting poetry to journals. Mm-hmm. Um, at the encouragement of my teacher who we had a creative writing poetry unit that we just did in class. And, um, you know, we all had to, well, we didn't have to, but you know, a couple people got picked to read their poem to the class and he really liked my poem and my classmates liked my poem. And I was like, Oh, what is this feeling? Uh, (laughs) I could do this forever. And, um, he used to let me stay in at recess and write poetry and he helped me find like children's magazines to submit it to and i'm pretty sure he even paid for my submission fees or postal fees because that was before the internet (laughs) so you know (laughs) you kind of like a stamp to submit your work back then um (laughs) and yeah he and and he would receive my rejection letters for me and kind of hand them to you know Uh (laughs) so that was really the start of it. And um, I kept on, um, and I started writing ghost stories in his class. He did not like those as much as the poems. He was always kind of like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> They're a little too creepy, huh? So, yeah, it's like, all right, I guess if that's what you want to write, huh? <laughs> so, so what were your poetry, your poems about? Usually nature, um, <laughs> you know trees and birds and things but sometimes spooky ones too um but yeah i liked i i got real obsessed with uh like emerson and thoreau (laughs) went through a big uh (laughs) big poetry phase with with that in junior high and high school but did you try to copy and poe did you try to copy their style or more their subject matter I played with both. Um, I love copying authors' voices. I think that's where I did a lot of um, learning to find my own voice mm. as a writer was in copying other tones. And one of my favorite assignments ever was um, in eighth grade English, we had to rewrite The Raven. Mm-hmm. And we only had to do like three verses, but I did the whole thing yeah. um, because I could not stop. And... Um, and just finding that, um, Poe's voice and writing a completely different poem. And mine was about, um, witchcraft, uh. <laughs> a witch that has overstepped her own boundaries and now it's coming back on her. And, yeah. um, and it was a spooky poem and I had a lot of fun with it. So, yeah, I like copying others' tone, which maybe is why I like to do ghostwriting now is because I can be a different author for a little while. <laughs> hmm. Interesting. So so does ghostwriting, does it involve understanding the – because I guess ghostwriting, you write, do you write it all yourself or partly or how does that work? Um, I think it depends on the gig. Um, most of my ghostwriting assignments have been for – people who aren't authors, Mm -hmm. but who have a book they want to write and have maybe tried to write it, aren't getting the results they want, already have other careers that make them, you know, they don't want to develop an authorship. You know, they just want to get this book out into Mm -hmm. the world. Um, Or they're, you know, in another industry or something. And so they will, will meet for a while and I'll, read their notes and their outlines and we'll talk and I will put on their voice and write their book. for them. <laughs> so it's fun. 
Is it usually nonfiction subjects? No, so far all the ones, well, all the books I've written have been um, fiction. But the for smaller pieces, I'll write some, I'll go straight some nonfiction. But oftentimes those are like um, newsletters or blog posts for corporations. Like for a while, I wrote the weekly newsletter from a CEO of a tech company for that he sent out to his employees it was supposed to be from him but he didn't have <laughs> time or energy to write these newsletters mm-hmm. so i wrote his weekly newsletter yeah. i had to pretend like i knew a lot about this specific branch of technology that i didn't it was like ai stuff <laughs> it was like i don't even like to type sir <laughs> but, I, but i will write this for you so would he, um, I would imagine he he would edit it or did he just give you free reign to just, just send it out? Oh no, I turn it into them and they, once I turn it in, my contract's fulfilled. I don't care what they do. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. So, hmm. My name's not on it. <laughs> right. So, right. If they want to ruin it they can, but it's still their name on it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's pretty cool. That keeps you busy and paid, I guess. Um, it pays better than your own vision, that's for sure. Oh, really? I, I imagine <laughs> so. Yeah. That's, yeah. <laughs> at least it's your vision. Even if you don't get paid as much, your vision is out there. For exactly. It's it. more fun to write my stuff, but yeah. I'm speaking with Sarah Reed, author of The Bone Weaver's Orchard. You can find more information about her work at inkwellmonster.wordpress.com. If you like this podcast, Full Contact Nerd, so far, please subscribe to it and rate it if you can. Please sign up for my weekly newsletter at fullcontactnerd.com or chrisalvarez.com to keep up with my latest posts. You'll also find written interviews and my social media links there. You can find the links to my other podcasts at militaryhistorypodcast.com and technologyinspace.com. And now back to the podcast. So do you, um, considering your method, do you overwrite and then edit back when near the end or do you underwrite and then add later? I underwrite a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, so the one, one way that I've kind of described it in the past is I write like, like I'm doing a painting, mm-hmm. um, where the first bit is just the background. Mm-hmm. It's just a wash. And then I'll add the details in different layers until I've built up the right depth. Hmm. So I almost never cut anything (laughs) unless I've decided to change the direction of the story. Mm -hmm. So for me, just about every edit is adding something. Um, And I'll do it in waves. So... um, like on Bone Weaver, one of the last waves I did was in determining that two of the students needed to have a better relationship or a more complex relationship with each other mm-hmm. um, because one of them didn't have enough scenes in the book. So that whole pass was just adding more scenes that gave those two characters opportunities to interact. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course... The danger in editing that way is that I'll add all these scenes and then realize it's completely impossible for it to be that time of day later in the book. <laughs> <laughs> and then I have to like edit something to make that the next day or change the time of day or mm-hmm. <laughs> why is the sun still out? It's the middle of the night now. <laughs> it's an it's a northern you can have a Yeah, it's a domino effect when you when you start to make changes that way. So that's why there's a whole separate notebook for keeping track of things that, Uh, that otherwise could get messed up. Continuity is tricky. (laughs) Okay. So you, so your other notebooks, a a continuity notebook then. Basically. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, it's just a way for me to keep my thoughts organized so that when I, need to go in and change something, I can look and make sure that I'm not going to completely screw something else up. Do, do you use post-it notes on your, your papers? Like flags or anything? Sometimes. Kind of... Yeah, I mean, if, um, but mostly only if I know I need to go back later mm-hmm. um, and change something. 
So if I am doing a read through and say I'm working on that pass where I'm changing these students' relationships, and then it occurs to me that, oh, I need to change something else about this other character, um, I don't want to mix myself up, so I won't like go do that right then. Mm. I'll flag it and say, come back and do this when you're doing a pass that relates more to that subject. Because mm. um, I really, for me, I need to focus on one thing at a time or I will just jump around <laughs> mm. like, oh, I'm working on this. Oh, but I got to go fix this. And then all but I'll forget to come back. <laughs> you know, mm. So I have to limit myself. So when you um, mentioned adding depth, um, the thing that pops in my mind is maybe balancing, and this might not be what you mean by depth, but what I think of is maybe balancing narration and dialogue and, and characterization and describing your world, you know, like balancing those elements. Mm -hmm. Is that what you mean by depth or is it something else? Yeah, there's a lot of that, um, but some of it will be um, as simple as oh, you know, one of my readers mentioned they're having trouble picturing what the dormitory looks like. Mm. You know, so I may do a pass that is entirely descriptive mm. of the building because um, I don't want to add it all in one place. <laughs> you mm. know, just like take someone through every minute detail of the building in one, you know, 300-page glomp of information. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, I mean, I could. That would be fun for me, but not for anybody else. Right. Um, yeah. <laughs> I like to read James the Missioner, so uh, yeah. <laughs> taking a 300-page break for description, I'm cool with. Yeah. <laughs> but um, it's not the way things are done these days. So yeah. I'll go through the whole manuscript and add, um, you know, something as simple as a quick description of wood grain mm -hmm. on a handrail. And while that's not like a big standout detail, and it might only be five words, um, it can do a lot to help complete the picture in someone's mind mm -hmm. of what a room might look like, you know, because if there's a, you know, fine grained wooden handrail, then they'll probably picture a room that they've seen sometime that had one and also had all this other detail and let their imaginations do the rest. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. but, you know, adding five words on this page, 10 words on this page and just, doing one full read through where I'm just adding like those little brush strokes. Hmm. And how about your use of language? Do you, um, how do you approach that? You know, you know, that sort of the lyrical quality of, of your writing, is it just kind of natural or how do you approach it? Um, it's, I, I'm not really sure. I mean, I don't have a strategy. Hmm. <laughs> I just, do what I like the sound of. I play with words a lot, mm -hmm. which some readers don't like. I've gotten some flack for that. Mm. Um, I like to use unexpected words, I think, in descriptions that mm. um, create metaphors. I love metaphor and simile, and I will throw all of that in, which... Um, Fortunately, it was well-received. I was not expecting it to be um, because lately the um, the trend is very stark, sparse, efficient writing. Mm -hmm. And I like efficient writing, and I still try to keep things efficient, mm -hmm. but I also love description mm -hmm. and unapologetically will provide plenty of it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so... Um, I guess it's a matter of just trying to find that balance, but still getting to play with words. Because if I'm not playing with the words, then I'm not having very much fun. Yeah. When you mentioned sort of, you know, the trend is to start writing, I would I would ask about, like, doesn't G.R.R. Martin, like, isn't he, like, descriptive to the point where some people complain that it's too much? Is that just he's allowed to get away with that or maybe the editing isn't as tight as it should be. Yeah. Part of it's his genre though. The mm -hmm. epic fantasy has always had leeway for yeah. descriptive writing, which is one of the things I like about reading it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's, it is descriptive because it's entirely world building. Mm 
Um, but and it's it's immersive. It's that whole genre. People seek it out because they want that immersion. Um, so I think that's why he gets away with it, and that's why other books in that genre are also, you know, 800-page doorstops. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, in fact, in publishing, even, you know, you'll see a lot of places say they won't take books over 100,000 words unless it's fantasy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Because they know that that's just one of the expectations of the genre is that you get you get a little more room to build that world. Mm -hmm. Do you know, are there any current authors, fantasy authors, who who take the opposite approach where they have fantasy that has, you know, the, the lean, stark writing and, and they still have success with it? Oh, yeah, definitely. And even in science fiction, too, which is the same kind of world building permissions. Um, honestly, the best example I can think of, of efficient, effective world building writing is Nanetti Akorafor, mm -hmm. especially in the Binti trilogy. Okay. They're all novellas. They're not even full length novels, mm -hmm. but the world building and the descriptions are so engaging and so complete because there is this complete efficiency of language in her writing mm -hmm. where you can get the entire picture in just this brief, just deft wave of the hand. Hmm. It's magical. <laughs> yeah. Would you say that's more than is that her, her voice versus just a leaner way of writing? Does that make um, sense? I think it's leaner writing. I mean, she has longer books as well. Mm -hmm. um, but as far as, um, I mean, Gemma Amore is a horror writer right now. She's also nominated for the Bram Stoker. Mm -hmm. um, and her books, a lot of them lean towards that novella length, but are just as descriptive and complete stories, but they're very efficiently worded. Mm -hmm. I mean, Bone Weaver's not long. It's under 200 pages. You know, it's um, it's very short. But um, horror, though, does tend to work better, I think, in general, at slightly shorter lengths. Hmm. Okay. Because uh, it's an adrenaline process, right? And you can't – that's a cycle. <laughs> you can't maintain tension for too long without it starting to lose its effect a little mm -hmm. bit. Interesting. Um so a bit of a, a whimsical question. Um, so when you were younger, was there any power technology or fictional setting that you yearn to have or be a part of? Um, like, like tech power, sci-fi or magic or like Any of anything, it, anything like what oh, was the world or, or thing you wanted? Well, I really, really wanted ghosts. <laughs> Um, and I looked for them everywhere. Hmm. So I don't know if that counts though, but that was, you know, if I had to pick one, one fantastical thing that I, and fairies, I was often just like, could be real. And, you know, <laughs> reading about them, looking for them hmm. and, and that sort of thing. Yeah. My friends and I would tromp around the woods looking for for fairies, but not the like cute Victorian flower fairies either. We were into like the fae. Like oh. we wanted, we were looking for toadstool circles that would ruin our lives. <laughs> <laughs> looking for danger, I see. Yeah. <laughs> so we felt um, ready for it. You you were ready. You were prepared. What what sort of what 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 tools do you take with you to be ready to to deal with that? Well, we actually, we would prepare for these walks. Um, important to have um, a very spooky, fancy-looking walking stick. Uh -huh. um, if you are able, bring a cat. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> we found a stray cat on one of these walks and somehow forced it to continue the walk with us. Um, you know, 
your journal. <laughs> we, yeah, used yeah. To, we used to load up packs and we called them magical journeys and there were rules. Like if you came to a rock, you had to turn left. If you came to a pile of snow, you had to turn right. If you came to a feather, you had to take 20 long paces forward. Mm-hmm. And it did not matter what obstacle was in your way. You had to follow the rules. And sometimes we ended up walking into lakes. <laughs> um you know, so <laughs> it was, you know, grand adventures before the internet, kids. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What do you do on the weekends? And, and your parents were walk to- into a lake. <laughs> and your parents were totally behind these journeys. It's, they did not know where we were. <laughs> yeah, this was the nineties. They did not <laughs> come like, back at sunset. Yeah, know? yeah. They didn't know. They're like they're chasing fairies again. <laughs> We came back from one of those walks and we had we had walked into a lake. It had like a little promontory out into an island, but it was underwater at the time and it was winter mm-hmm. and we were very cold. <laughs> we came back to her mom's house and like she filled up the bathtub and we had to put our feet in the bathtub mm-hmm. to warm them back up because we had had to take our shoes off to walk in the water. And that was how I learned what it feels like when you take frozen feet and warm them up too quickly. Oh yeah. It's very painful. Hmm. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so did you ever come close to finding a fairy? Well, I have to believe we did. I'm not entirely certain we didn't walk through that toadstool ring. And I got to say the last, like, 13 months have pretty much convinced me we did. Yeah. <laughs> um, so did you, grow, so it sounds like you grew up in a country setting or was it more suburbs and you found your way? <laughs> no, it was, it was wilderness. It was. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, both mine and my best friend's house. When, when, when my parents, when they built their house, it was the only house around uh, eventually it became a neighborhood, mm. but my best friend actually lived on a farm about 20 miles away mm-hmm. and we spent most of our time at her house. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it was all fields. It was in Colorado, right, right in the foothills. So some of our journeys were uphill. <laughs> um, it makes yeah, me beautiful. Wonder... Oh, I'm sure it was. Yeah. I, it makes me wonder that stray cat was sent to keep an eye on you. The, the bunch of you so that you didn't get into the wrong <laughs> toadstool rings. I, I could believe that, that yes, <laughs> might've been a, a might've, might've been some much needed help, a governess of sorts. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. In the form of stray cat. <laughs> yeah. We could, we could have used some oversight. Some, I remember one time we were deciding that, we wanted to meditate in a thunderstorm. Hey, you, if you've ever been in a thunderstorm in the Rockies, not a good idea. Um, yeah, that's the closest I've ever come to being struck by lightning. <laughs> oh. It was, it was real close. <laughs> it's like we could see these like glowy lines, like creeping up from the ground mm-hmm. in the field by us. And then our hair started to kind of, <laughs> and then we ran inside and then it got real, real loud. <laughs> yeah. Huh. That's kind of, it's pretty cool. As long as you survive, that's, that sounds like a pretty cool experience. I don't know how, but we did. <laughs> it was a straight cat <laughs> was watching like, uh, those kids. I think the cat had retired by that point. Oh, really? Oh, <laughs> I <yeah>. give up. <laughs> Seeking new assignment. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, with this book, did you have any difficulties finishing it or getting it published? No. Um, surprisingly, I expected more trouble than I got. Mm. Um, I wrote it for NaNoWriMo. Mm-hmm. So, I wrote it very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and for that one, I didn't really know where it was going. Um uh, I've since become more of an outliner, but Hmm. for that one, I had never written a novel length piece before. I'd written a lot of short fiction, but every every time I tried to write a novel, it would just end. (laughs) 
<laughs> so I was like, well, that's another short story. <laughs> but this time I managed to keep it going. Mm-hmm. And um, I edited it for years, mm-hmm. about four years. Okay. Um, so... <laughs> I'm not sure NaNoWriMo saved me time. <laughs> you know, I wrote it very fast, but then it took a long time to fix. So, yeah. um, But then uh, I did I did submit to agents, and I got a revise and resubmit from the fourth agent I sent it to. Hmm. And so I spent some time doing that, and in the end, he passed. Hmm. Um but wanted to see my next book. I was like, okay, well, I don't know when that's going to be, but sure. (laughs) And he told me to set this one aside Hmm. and send him my next one. I was like, well, you didn't say yes. I don't have to do what you say. Um, So instead I thought, well, I'm kind of in a weird spot where I still really wanted this particular person as my agent. I knew by then, you know, I was already starting to write the next book. Um, this, that'd be sending that. So I thought, well, maybe, maybe I publish this one myself and then I'll try the agent again with the next book. Mm-hmm. So I researched smaller presses that you don't need an agent to submit to. And my top choice was Journal Stone. And largely because the editor working there, Jess Landry, was someone I wanted to work with. Hmm. Um, I knew of her. They had published several of my favorite authors, like Gemma Files and Bracken McLeod. And so I was like, well, hey, I'm going to send it there. And they said yes. <laughs> so nice. um, I I only submitted it one place. And uh, so I didn't, I didn't have trouble. Um, but... But yeah, I'm still kind of in that limbo. Um, and that agent, I did send him this next book, and and we're working on that one. <laughs> it still hasn't said yes, <laughs> but we are working on it together. And this is now, gosh, five, five, six years <laughs> in the process. So mm-hmm. publishing is slow business <laughs> between writing, editing revising and producing and releasing books it's not a quick industry <laughs> no no but i guess having the bram stoker award helps helps in some degree i i hope it will um yeah i mean if uh if i do decide to you know that i don't want to keep revising with this agent who has not signed me, I, you know, I could go to a small press again and say, let's do this again, you know, and find another publisher myself or go back to clearing agents, you know, and mm-hmm. yeah, having, having an award in your bio is great. Um, in the end though, it's really just the work that matters. So. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So where can people find you online? Do you have a website, social media? I do. Um, I'm on Twitter and Instagram as at Inkwell Monster, just mm-hmm. one word. Um, and then my website is inkwellmonster.wordpress.com. And I haven't updated it in like a year because because yeah. 2020. Yeah. <laughs> grad school. Yeah. <laughs> but I do need to do that soon. <laughs> and I guess that's the standard spelling of Inkwell and, Ma- and Monster. Yeah. It is. Yep. Yep. I, I like, uh, fountain pens and, and ink wells and that's what I write with. And, and I like monsters. So it seemed, seemed like my name. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to ask what, what you write with. And so fountain pens is what you stick to for the most part. Yeah. I mean, I'm not, um, super picky, but I like pens in general, but, um, my favorite thing to write with are fountain pens, yes. Hmm. I have a small, well, moderate <laughs> collection. <laughs> oh, that's cool. Yeah, actually, your bio said your hands are often covered with ink, so I guess that's where that comes from. Yes, yes, they usually are. Um, I review fountain pens and inks for um, the Pen Addict blog oh. also, so... 
even if I'm not covered in ink for my own writing purposes, I'm usually covered in ink for that. <laughs> yeah. Well, what's the best way to wash off ink? I know I've it's always been a problem when I get ink on my hands. Most fountain pen inks are just water soluble, so soap and water just takes it right off. Like, um, if if it's like the thicker calligraphy inks, you might need like a pine soap or something okay. fancy. But okay. for fountain pen ink, though, it it washes out of clothes, thank goodness, and carpets. Okay. Not so much wood floors, but um, <laughs> uh. <laughs> skin it comes right off. <laughs> okay, okay. I feel like I had trouble. Maybe I used like the very heavy, thicker ink because I, I recall having trouble. But uh, okay. Yeah, if you've used like an iron gall ink or an India ink that has pigment and permanent factors, then yeah, you might have some staining for a couple of days. But most most pen inks these days are just water based, which means don't spill your tea on your notebook. Yeah. So when you write it with these pens on the paper, do you have to worry about smearing? That's another thing, you know, accidentally rubbing. Um, I I use blotting paper. Mm -hmm. Um, so most of the notebooks that I buy are actually form paper formulated for fountain pens, and um, they usually come with, or I can buy separately sheets of blotting paper. And I just have a sheet that's the same size as my page. So anytime I have to close a page, I just keep that sheet in between. Um, and it dries the ink on the page. So okay. not a problem. <laughs> but as far as when you're writing, you do you have to be careful about, you know, where you position your hand so you're not smearing your... Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, um, I'm right-handed, so it's a little easier for me. I, my hand stays below my writing. Hmm. I have left-handed friends who struggle a little bit more since their hand tends to follow the pen. Mm -hmm. um, but they make some inks that um, dry a little faster. These mm -hmm. days you can get, you know, faster drying inks or non-smearing inks and things like that. So. Mm -hmm. what, what pen, what fountain pen would you love to have that you don't own? What brand or style? It's a long, it's a long list. <laughs> um, there's one that like, Everybody in the pen community, we say we have our grail pen, like mm -hmm. the holy grail. It's it's unattainable. Like, we realize we'll never own this pen, but it's the one we want the most. Mm -hmm. um, and mine is a, it's a Nakaya, which is a handmade lacquered Japanese pen. Mm -hmm. And the lacquer on this particular model has been purposefully carved away to look like it's split so it has like a little crack running down the length of the pen mm -hmm. that's been lacquered black on the inside. And then two glowing eyes have been painted in the crack. And there's a claw creeping out of the crack, <laughs> like around the pen. Oh, wow. I want that pen so much. It is $2,500. Yeah. I won't ever own this. <laughs> but it is the most pen masterpiece <laughs> I've ever seen. Wow. But, I mean, I've held pens that cost as much as my house. Like, hmm. so, I mean, it's my grail pen, but somebody else's grail pen is, like, you know, three cars. Hmm. <laughs> so, you know, like, wow. pen, the pens run the full range and cost from pennies to, like, more than I will ever see in my life. <laughs> wow, wow. So, if someone were to... um write out some kind of, uh, you know, like a, a version of the Necronomicon or some kind of, you know, spooky book that had real power. What, what, what pens, what fountain pen would they use for that? Do you think is the, would be the best? Well, I think tool? they would have to carve it themselves, hmm. right? Maybe out of the bones of their enemy. Ah. Um, you know, if you're going to work that kind of dark magic, you got to have the right tools. <laughs> okay. Okay. So there's nothing on the market. Someone could just, you know, shortcut, <laughs> shortcut. You're to... not going to go to Staples and find that pen. No, <laughs> you're going you're to need to make it yourself. Maybe even out of one of your own bones, like oh. <laughs> we're talking serious. <laughs> Ooh, I guess you could. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. All right. I'll, I'll I'll settle for that answer. That's fine. Um, <laughs> so, okay, cool. Um, 
Well, that's all the questions I have now that we've veered off to pens, you know, from books. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, um, do you have any final thoughts or words? No, just thanks for having me. It was nice meeting you. And yeah, it was great. Nice chat. Thank thanks you for chatting with me. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, Full Contact Nerd, please subscribe and rate it if you can. If you want more fiction and fiction studies ranging from ancient mythology to modern-day sci-fi, fantasy, and horror, please sign up for my weekly newsletter at fullcontactnerd.com or chrisalvarez.com to keep up with my latest posts. On my webpage, you'll also find written interviews and links to my social media accounts on YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I also discuss art, acting, comic books, gaming, and much more. Thanks again, and keep imagining the past, the present, and the future.